0: And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they may be the uh, greatest archaeological find of the 20th century, and uh, it's a great story how the uh, scrolls were discovered. And then um there was uh, some early work in translation then some scholars were complaining that the translation work wasn't going fast enough so there's always been a little bit of controversy surrounding it and then you have kind of well kind of eccentric or idiosyncratic scholars who have published uh what i think are irresponsible speculations about the dead sea scrolls a lot is known here about the scrolls and more and more people are beginning to see it as a help in understanding first-century Palestinian Judaism, the Judaism in which Jesus worked, in which the Christian movement started. Uh, We now have uh, at hand a great volume called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Unlocking the Jewish Roots of Christianity by Dr. John Bergsma. Who's joined us many times before? He's professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and as I said, the mo- most recently he's the author of Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. John, good to have you back.
1: Hey Al, it's great to be with you. Uh, let
0: When did you get interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Because this is, this takes a lot of. I mean, it takes a lot of scholarly work to do the kind of thing you did here.
1: Sure, yeah, it does. Um, you know, it's, it's all God's providence that I got into the scrolls. Um, honestly, I went to the University of Notre Dame to get a degree in Old Testament, um, Al, hoping to be a scripture scholar, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I arrived there that I realized that Notre Dame is one of the top research institutions in the world for scrolls research, <laughs> and before that, you know, prior to that, I had really almost no acquaintance with the Dead Sea Scrolls, didn't know why they were significant, mm-hmm. um, and continued to not understand why they were significant for uh, several years into my doctoral program. And really, Al, it was only uh, many years later, when I was teaching uh, scripture at Franciscan University of Steubenville here, that um, it began to dawn on me that the problem was, uh, I was always looking at the scrolls in terms of their relevance for the Old Testament, but the more fascinating aspect is really their relevance for the New Testament, because they are the only documents we have that were physically copied uh, during and, and just prior to the lifetime of our Lord. The only Jewish documents that still have an existence. Just, you know, fascinating to yep. think, you know, these 2,000-year-old manuscripts. And so they give us an unvarnished window into the thought world of Jews who lived, ate, drank, and worshipped contemporary with our Lord. And I just, uh, this this book I wrote out, it's, it's a first foray into, um, you know, to, uh, trying to Share what the light that they shed on the New testament, but there's much more to be done
0: yeah uh and I notice i mean they're, they're, MIT is doing studies uh on just ancient parch making technology <laughs> and uh, right. i mean th- th- these uh, they have a value for it's in many different fields of uh study. Uh, so Absolutely. yeah i I always you know all I knew about the Dead Sea Scrolls was, it was there was a good apologetics point made about um they discovered this early manuscript you know they contain the early an early manuscript the earliest manuscript of Isaiah, and, um, right. and it was often pointed out that uh, there aren't you know there's not significant change in the text between uh, the Dead Sea Scroll Isaiah and then the Masoretic text from the Middle Ages. But beyond that, I don't know too much, except that lots of people uh, like Barbara Thiering and uh, a few other scholars, Eisenman, seem to make try to make hay uh, claiming that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are supposed to um, uh, destroy or upset uh, Christian teaching. Is, is, <laughs> is I mean, that's eccentric, isn't it? I mean, it's weird.
1: Yes yes i you know in the in the field you know they barbara and and um robert eisenman are are um outliers yeah. yeah um who you know espouse views that aren't held by by most scholars um i think most scroll scholars would would chuckle at the idea that they you know debunk something about Christianity or about Judaism for that matter yeah. Yeah. uh they don't debunk anything they just give us a better view of Judaism as practiced in the first century, which is such a fascinating time period, of course, because it's the origins of the Church, but, you know, it's also the origins out of rabbinic Judaism, yeah. you know, modern Judaism, which uh, really began in earnest after the destruction of the Temple, when Judaism had to reorganize without a temple and a priesthood anymore. So it's, um, you know, it's a pivotal uh, century. And, you um, that's why both Jews and Christians should be very interested in, in the light that the scroll shed.
0: You make the point uh, in the book, too, that we have to make distinguish between this later rabbinic Judaism uh, that developed after the destruction of the temple and uh, the, the more ancient uh, faith of the Hebrews. Uh, why is that so important?
1: Well, yeah, this is a point uh, that was impressed upon me by my um, Judaism professor in at, at Notre Dame that folks tend to you know observe uh, modern rabbinic Judaism you know the synagogue practice and the variations you know you've got conservative and orthodox mm-hmm. and ultra orthodox forms of of modern Judaism and and then project that back into the Old Testament such that um, we imagine Moses leading people in the broad brimmed black hats <laughs> and, uh, hair, hairstyles, you know, with, uh, sideburns, etc., and long black coats that, you know, we, we think of, uh, associated with Hasidic Judaism or something like that, or, you know, across the Red Sea, you know, being chased by the, by the, uh, by the Egyptians. And it's, um, that's what we call an, an anachronism. Like when you, when you mix up, uh, elements from different time periods. So, uh, In super brief, Al, um, modern Judaism is led by rabbis, and that means a a teacher, and it's focused on prayer and the study of uh, the law of Moses in a synagogue, which is, uh, a synagogue is not a temple, Uh, a synagogue is a house of prayer and of study. But ancient Judaism was not led by rabbis, it was led by priests, and the focus is not the synagogue, but... The temple where animal sacrifice was offered, mm-hmm. and it, again focused in uh, Jerusalem, where the only legitimate temple was, or came to be after David. Right, and so that priestly, sacrificial, liturgical uh, form of worship—that was the faith of ancient Israel, and it's quite different um from the way that modern jews uh practice you know there's obviously continuity there in some of the teaching in the scriptures but it's also very very different yeah and uh yeah. and we got to acknowledge that
2: sure
0: uh this the you your first chapter here is the archaeological find of the 20th century uh it really was big right i mean this was a, a major discovery how, how long did it take them to realize how big a discovery it was?
1: Yeah, it, it took them longer than we would have liked, because, the you know, the, the Bedouin shepherd were, you know, traveling along the shore of the Dead Sea with their flocks, and, and through a rock in a cave, her breaking pottery went in and pulled out these three ancient scrolls, and they were disappointed because they were looking for gold they just (laughs) hung these scrolls in a bag you know blowing in the wind for for weeks and now we would absolutely cringe you know to imagine these things that are worth uh you you can't put a price on them the state of israel spent no one knows how much but tens perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars building a bunker-like museum to House these things wow. that that museum in Jerusalem can probably take a direct nuclear hit without those scrolls being damaged because they are the most precious possession of the state of Israel. So anyway, the, the, you know the the Bedouin found them, obviously couldn't read them, and it took months and even years to get them into the hands of some scholars from Hebrew University and some American scholars who were working in in Jerusalem, and then ultimately back to. Uh, the world's leading expert on on ancient um, Hebrew writing, who at that time was an American scholar, William Fox Albright. Sure. And when he saw what uh, what there was on these scrolls, uh, you know, he was just shocked because they were a thousand years older, Al, a thousand years than any Hebrew copies of the Bible that we had previously had. And usually you... You make incremental steps back in right, time. Right, This is a huge leap, you know? So, um, yeah, um, that's why it was so stunning, this, you know, kind of huge jump back into the time of Jesus in terms of, you know, our copies of the Scripture. Yeah. And these other religious writings that we hadn't seen before, and then we started to read them, and, and uh, wow, there's, there's a, a Jewish monastic community on the shores of the Dead Sea that has all this interesting theology, some of which sounds... Strangely, you know, <laughs> similar to Christian teaching and, right, and what we have in right. the Gospels.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us, who were who were these uh, Jewish monks, these Essenes, as they are called?
1: Yes. So, um, you know, that's a little bit controversial. There, there are some scholars who want to resist calling them monks, okay. uh, thinking that that's too Christian a term. sure. But, Al, you know, we just need to remind ourselves, look, Buddhists have monks, right. you know, many religions have monks. So we're not being, you know, aggressively Christian by calling them monks. And it's no knock on the Jewish tradition to acknowledge that they are the originators of monasticism and Western civilization. I, I know many Israeli scholars are proud of that. They say, <laughs> hey, look, yeah. you know, this is... Yet another thing that we invented. We you
0: know? we beat you guys to it, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: we, exactly. So I mean, it, it, I, I think there's no problem in acknowledging this. But um, yes, we what we have is Jewish celibate men living in community, praying, working. You know, it's the whole aura at labora thing of you know later taken up by Saint Benedict. They're they're uh, providing their own necessities. They're engaging daily in in worship and prayer and the study of scriptures and um, in living poverty, living lives of self-denial. You know, so it's the whole monastic uh, 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 regime, yeah. you know, taking place on the shore of the Dead Sea.
0: Uh, I'll tell you what, John, hold it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation talking with Dr. John Bergsma, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, magnificent book. I'm Al Krestel. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. John Bergsman. He's been a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville since 2004. And uh, we're looking at his most recent publication, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Unlocking the Jewish Roots of Christianity. It, this is really an outstanding uh, overview of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the relationship to Jesus, uh, the early church. It gives us a an outstanding sense of 1st uh, cent Palestinian Judaism. So we're talking about the Essenes before the break, and uh, these were these uh, Jewish monks. Uh, they were celibate. You mentioned they were male. How do we know that they were primarily uh, male?
1: Well, first of all, the religious rule, called the rule of uh, the community that we dug up, it would be analogous to the rule of St. Benedict or mm-hmm. any religious rule. Um, their rule only regulates for men. It doesn't uh, deal with any of the issues that you would encounter if you had women present at the, in the community.
2: Okay.
1: Um, you know, in, in Jewish ritual law, the presence of women complicates matters quite a bit, and none of that is uh, present. So that's one one way, Al. Also, we've got no less than three classical historians uh, who... Talk about this group, and all of them remark immediately on this novel way of life that they live without women. Um, that, you know that, that they're continent, etc. Um, and then we've got a graveyard, uh, Al, with uh, with uh, roughly a thousand single graves, and we've exhumed these graves, and all the skeletons that we've uh, exhumed appear to be male. Um, They're all oriented north-south, with their head to the south, so that they would rise, you know, facing the north. Mm -hmm. And what's unusual about that, Al, is Jewish burials at this time were family burials. You know, all the members of the family would be in a common tomb. So this is very much a deviation from typical Jewish practice, which indicates that the people living there uh, led a different lifestyle. So you put it all together, and I think that it, there's a very strong argument. There's additional evidence that I could mention, but, you know, that's it in a yeah, nutshell.
0: Yeah, Uh What does this do to the the common claim that, um, you know, that somehow the Jews didn't like celibacy, that it was always expected that a Jewish boy would grow up and get married? Uh, is this, right. Does this challenge that?
1: It does indeed, you know, and, you know, our listeners will remember perhaps ten years ago now the big splash that the Da Vinci Code made, maybe even more than ten.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and Dan Brown, you know, one of the arguments he used to argue that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene was that, oh, you know, it's unrealistic to think that Jesus was single because uh, Jews have no respect for celibacy. Well, that's one of these anachronisms, this one of those, you know, uh, projecting our modern experience back. Um, it's true that in most forms of modern Judaism, celibacy is not respected, but in the Judaism of our Lord's day, it was, and, and that's reflected in the Gospels, and that's another thing i really like to throw in there. We're familiar with that passage where Jesus says, you know, there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And, Al, you know, I grew up as a pious, you know, Protestant boy, and could not figure out what Jesus was talking about. Who were these eunuchs
2: hmm.
1: who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus is talking about the Essenes there. He's, he's talking about this community on the shores of the Dead Sea, maybe other communities that we haven't, you know, dug up. But Yeah,
0: he wasn't saying there will be eunuchs. Uh, he, no. He, he was saying right now there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of of God. so
1: Exactly. Yeah. If, if you had said there will be, uh, you know, we could say, well, he's prophesying the growth of the religious life. Right. But no, he's talking about his contemporaries, his contemporaries. And uh, I, I never got that. I think most people never have not got that, but that's what he's talking about. <coughs> Only this group within Judaism practiced celibacy, and he's commending them for it, which you really ought to take to heart. Wow. Um...
0: So you think it's likely that he had the Essenes in mind with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, he. You know, if we if we talk about Essene teaching, he's going to have his points of difference. They were very uh, rigorous about the food laws and the cleanliness laws, and our Lord dispenses his disciples from those, mm-hmm. as we see in the Gospels and in Acts. So he would have had that issue with them, but on other issues, he uh... Our, our lord's teaching is is identical or extremely similar to the Essenes, and on the issue of you know living living this life of singleness and purity while you await the coming of the messiah our lord commended that um and recommended that as a lifestyle for his followers and of course that leads to the the tradition of the religious life and the celibate priesthood uh... within the christian faith
2: what
0: as they await the Messiah? Was this their fundamental reason for gathering together? Was to prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah or Messiahs?
1: Yes, uh, indeed. You know, they, they were a, an end times group. Um, you know, periodically in American history, we have these you know these groups that are convinced that Jesus is going to come back right. and will separate out and you know go off in the hills somewhere and, and make a little compound and. And um, that's kind of like what the Essenes were. They they uh, were expecting two messiahs, as you mentioned, a priestly one and a royal one. And they were engaged in serious prayer and study of of the scriptures to get themselves ready for that momentous event. And they, they moved out to the east of Jerusalem, uh, most likely going to the shores of the Dead Sea because that was directly east of the holy city, and they expected, based on various prophecies, that the Messiah would come from the east to enter Jerusalem when he came to restore all things. And they, um, you know, as the spiritual goes, they wanted to be in that number when the saints go marching in. When the Messiah came by, they wanted to jump in the the parade and, and head up and, and celebrate, uh, you know, the the culmination of the ages.
0: Were they thinking of themselves as a public witness, uh, you know, uh, in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, uh, making straight in the desert a highway for our God?
1: Indeed, yeah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, they, they took that as the basis of you know the rationale for going out into the wilderness and um, setting up shop, as it were, out there, and uh, preparing themselves spiritually for the coming of the messiahs. Mm-hmm. Um, Our listeners will will immediately recognize John the Baptist in that. You know who also cites that verse when he's challenged to explain himself uh, to his contemporary Jews and. John the Baptist says, "Yeah, I'm out in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord." As I mentioned in the book, uh, Al, I think that John probably was formed in this community and then was kicked out or left uh, because John the Baptist wanted to preach more widely mm-hmm. than, the, than, these, than these monks were doing. There, there was a kind of um, exclusivity, kind of a, a closed, close shop mentality. Among the Essenes when they where they, they regarded themselves as a spiritual elite, and if you want to be saved, then you got to leave your life, come out here and join us. They didn't engage as much in, as it were, you know, outreach and preaching to the masses, um, especially not to the Gentiles. and we see John the Baptist doing that um, but uh, they they want to prepare uh, for the Lord, but uh, you know I think again, the issue between them and the Baptist was, how widely are we going to throw that net? How mm-hmm, mm-hmm. widely are we going to encourage our contemporary generation to prepare? And John wanted to do that more widely.
0: Well, make the, make the case for me uh, why you believe John the Baptist was, uh, at some point anyways, uh, involved uh, as a member of the Essene community.
1: Well, there's so many uh, details, just so many little bits of information about John that all make sense once yeah. you bring the Essenes into the picture, um, and, and Raymond Brown, the great uh, you know Catholic commentator on the Gospel yeah. of John, at one point he mentioned that virtually everything that is said about John in the Gospels has some kind of resonance with the Dead Sea Scrolls hmm. and the Essene community. So, but uh, uh, just off the top of my head here, Al, you, there's that. Curious verse in Luke that says that John was in the desert during his childhood until the beginning of his public ministry. That's kind of hard to explain. You don't send a child out into the wilderness to kind of fend for himself as he grows up. But uh, we know from historians and from the Dead Sea Scrolls that this monastic community, which was out in the wilderness, brought boys in, either orphans or. Uh, boys given up by their parents and then formed them at the community and that's how they got what we would call their vocations you mm-hmm. know similar to monasteries in the in medieval times in Europe and uh, so that suggests to me that John was probably raised in the wilderness by this community um, his his distinctive practice of baptizing people seems connected with, this monastic group because they baptized every day. Uh, They washed in water daily uh, believing that the Holy Spirit was cleansing them from their sins in that water washing. So John's theology of baptism has uh, some real connections there uh, with with, um, that practice. John is ministering only a few miles from where this monastery was located, just a few miles up the river as it were. Um, His uh, fierce words against the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees, etc., also reflect, uh, you know, how the Essenes resented these other groups. Um, And then his diet, Al. You know, he's he's living off the land. He's just eating bugs and wild honey. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, he records this time period, mentions that people kicked out of the community of Qumran uh, or kicked out of the Essene community, I should say, um, often starved to death or close to it because they had taken oaths only to eat the food of the community, and then when they got kicked out, uh, they, they had uh, you know, forbade themselves by these oaths to eat any food that they found elsewhere. But a way around that, Al, is just eating stuff that's not technically food. It's just part of the environment, and I think that's the meaning of the locusts and the wild honey. Mm. They, they weren't prepared by human hands. They, they weren't prepared food. So they they were a loophole in the oaths that John had taken when he had entered the monastic community. And so he could still eat those without breaking his previous oath. That, that makes uh, makes sense of this odd diet. Wow. So there's other information, too, but that's just kind of it in a nutshell. There's so many uh, lines of evidence that point to a connection between him and Uh, the, the Qumran Monastery
0: hold it there John, we'll come back, continue conversation, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, unlocking the Jewish roots of Christianity I'm Al Cresta, we'll be back with Dr. John Bergsma Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. John Bergsma, is the author of "Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls: Unlocking the Jewish Roots of Christianity." Last segment, we were talking about uh, John the Baptist and the uh, scenes, uh, as they're called, the uh, those who the residents at uh, Qumran and who the those who created uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. What when we, when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls? there are biblical books that are among them that we would recognize as scripture. Did they, did the, the, those who lived in the, uh, in in Qumran, did they have a different canon than um, the the Palestinian Jews? The Pharisees?
1: It it, uh, surely seems so, Al. Um, The Pharisees had a collection of sacred books that, is similar, although not identical, to what we would know as the Protestant Old Testament Mm -hmm. or the Jewish Bible. But this Essene community on the shores of the Dead Sea, uh, they would have included additional books as inspired, or what we might call, using a later term, biblical. You know, of course, this is an early Christian term. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bible and biblical just means the book, you know. But... um, Yes, indeed. So there's a there's a document many of our listeners probably have not encountered before called the Book of Jubilees,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which ironically is held as part of the Bible by the um, Ethiopic Orthodox Church,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: but uh, not by virtually any other communion. Okay, um, but it was very popular among Jews in the century in the centuries just prior to the birth of our Lord. Um, and uh, claims to be inspired. It's kind of a rewriting of Genesis and Exodus. Uh, there's also a, a collection of works that go by the name First Enoch, and was widely used in the early church. Um, they had it in in their library and probably regarded it as biblical, as inspired. But interesting for us as Catholics, Al, they also had many copies of Tobit, um, more copies of Tobit than... Than a dozen or more other uh, biblical books, and they really seem to derive some of their ideas of marriage from, for example, that famous prayer um, of uh, of the young couple there in Tobit that we often use for nuptial masses, mm-hmm. um, and that is interesting to me, Al, because you know having been a former Protestant, you know I, I grew up thinking that. Oh, the Jews never used those so-called Deuterocanonical books <laughs> right. that the uh, that the that the Catholics have in their canon. But here we find many copies, and they seem to really, uh, really put a uh, a lot of lot of weight on on Tobit's theology of marriage.
0: So, uh, what? Are, so those are those are the Book of Jubilees. Uh, you also mentioned First Enoch in the in the book here as another book that shows up. Um, and then you've got uh, Tobit, you've got Job, uh, and, and a number of other biblical books. Do, is there you mentioned earlier a manual of conduct uh, that it contains? Uh, and also, I wanted you to explain to me who this figure uh, that's called the Teacher of Righteousness. So, if you would do that, please.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, um, this one of the most documents from the scrolls is this uh, rule of the community, that's the name that scholars call it, or they call it in Hebrew, serach uh, hayachad, Hebrew for rule of the community. And, you know, think of it as analogous to the rule of St. Benedict or the rule of St. Augustine. Um, it, it's a religious rule. You know, it's, it's that genre that guides the life of a community and gives the rules for how they should behave, and it also records their central theological teachings, their their central doctrines, and it's probably the most valuable uh, document uh, for understanding their way of life and their thought uh, during in in and thus this important group during the during the lifetime of our Lord, uh, but. In there, you find so many interesting parallels to certain parts of the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of John, uh, because certain phrases that are frequent in in their religious rule, like sons of light, sons of darkness, mm-hmm. spirit of truth, spirit of falsehood, these are terms that are actually hardly ever used in other Jewish literature or in the New Testament, except in the Gospel of John and John's epistles yes, likewise. Yes. So uh that, Al, was earth shaking for Bible scholars to discover that. Because prior to the discovery of the scrolls, it was common to date John in the second or third generation of the growth of the church and, and claim that it was fictional. But here we had parallel terms and parallel concepts from the time of Jesus, and even prior to the time of Jesus, showing that John is not a late document, Al. It's a very early and and very Jewish in its outlook. It it really looks, smells, and feels like something that would have been written by a contemporary of Jesus. And of course, that's no surprise to us as believers, but it was a surprise to the academic community.
0: Now, they mention that the teacher of righteousness, who, who was this figure? Was he was he a contemporary of Jesus, or is this an idealized, you know, teacher in the mind of the Essenes?
1: Sure, yeah, and debates rage about that. Um, he was certainly, a, 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 I, I would say, uh, any reputable scholar would acknowledge that he was a historical figure. Okay. To, either founded or perhaps refounded um, this community um, out on the shores of the Dead Sea. Um, again, there are debates about it, but I'll just give you a fairly mainstream reconstruction now that many reputable scholars have argued, and, and I agree with them. And that is that he appears to have been a high priest from Jerusalem, probably the high priest, who uh, was kicked out uh, by the kings, the the Maccabean kings, uh, around the year 150 before the birth of our Lord, hmm. and the usual reconstructionist scenario is that he he went down to the shores of the Dead Sea and either founded or or reorganized this uh, community down there um, as a kind of theological exile. You know, he was he's in exile, and and they were of course greatly disturbed that that this legitimate high priest would be you know kicked out of his rightful uh, uh, job and and an impostor placed in his position for political reasons. and they they felt that this portended you know the the end of times and so they they now put their hopes in the coming of the Messiah because the the faith of Israel had been so seriously compromised and corrupted. And uh, so they sat out there waiting for the Messiah to come and correct this, you know, uncorrectable situation.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned earlier that the scenes uh, were focused on uh, priesthood um, rather than rabbinic, uh, rabbinic approach. What was their What? How did they see the the role of the priest?
1: Yes, the um, they, they were very much focused on uh, the priesthood, and in some of their writings they expressed resentment towards the Pharisees and the scribes whom they felt had usurped uh, the proper role of the priests in the life of the people of Israel. Because if you look in the Old Testament and say Deuteronomy 17, the priests were the ones who were to... Uh, give the interpretation of the law, but the scribes and Pharisees were usurping that authority, Mm. Alan. They were teaching the people the interpretation of the law. And uh, the Essenes uh, resented that. Uh, They were led by men who had a good priestly bloodline um, in accordance with all the regulations of the law of Moses and the latter prophets in terms of who... uh, was qualified by by their genealogy to to be a priest, and uh, they insisted that the proper interpretation of the law, you know, had to be sought from uh, the priests um, who led their their community. So they they w- were very priestly in their outlook, and uh, and they, they basically had three ranks of leadership. Al the the head of their community they called in Hebrew a mabacher. Which translates into "episkopos" in Greek or "bishop" in English. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can legitimately say they were led by a bishop, um, and then under the bishop they had a rank of priests. Uh, that was the second order of leadership, and under them, a rank of uh, that they called the Levites, uh, who had a role analogous to. The diaconate wow. uh, in the early church. So we Whoa. see some strong similarities wow. in their governing yeah. structure to that of the early church, Al. Which is, you know, to me, kind of endlessly fascinating.
0: Uh, we've only got about two, three minutes left. I, what about the Eucharist? Did they have a, you know, a parallel to uh, the Eucharist?
1: You know, th- this is one of the more fascinating aspects, Al, but. Uh, they they had a daily meal around noon of bread and wine that they celebrated with liturgical solemnity in a private upper room uh, in their compound. And this was led by a priest who had to reach out and bless the wine and bless the bread before anybody else could partake. And before and after the ceremony, they sang hymns of thanksgiving, you know, which is what the word Eucharist means, right. the Greek <laughs> yes. word for thanksgiving. So, did they have a Eucharist? Well, clearly they didn't believe it was the body and blood of Jesus the Messiah, but they certainly did have a ritual meal of bread and wine on a daily basis that was for thanksgiving, um, and, and that marked their membership in this new covenant, something we haven't mentioned yet, Al, but they... They thought that they had established the New Covenant within their community, and the sign that you were fully initiated was that you were allowed to participate in this meal of bread and wine that would continue until the Messiah came and celebrated with them. Wow. So, I know we only have a few minutes here, but if you ponder what what I just ran over... You can see where that's leading and, and all the fascinating connections yeah. that, that has with what we read in the Gospels.
0: Do any Essenes show up on the pages of the New Testament?
1: I would argue strongly that they do. Um, the man carrying a jar of water that leads Peter and John to the upper room, that was women's work, Al. Um, the only men that would carry their own water would be men living in celibate community, and that would be an Essene. Wow, That's what I'd argue there. The the curious man who's only wearing a single linen garment and and leaves it in the hands of the soldiers and flees naked, uh, at in Mark uh, Mark's account of the arrest of our Lord, this habit of l- wearing nothing but a single linen garment that that was what the Essenes did. That young man was certainly part of the Essene movement. Um, so yes, indeed, and, and possibly even Nathaniel in in John one uh, who. Is uh, referred to by our Lord as an Israelite in whom is no guile. Yeah, yeah. that was ki- that was terminology characteristic of the Essenes. That's what oh. they called themselves. They didn't call themselves Essenes. They called themselves Israelites. Uh, so, yeah, in those instances and possibly some others as well, Al. Oh, that's
0: incredible. I. There's so much more in the book, too. I, I urge people to get a hold of it. Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Unlocking the Jewish Roots of Christianity by Dr. John Bergsma. John, once again, thanks for your work, and thanks for being with me today.
1: You bet, Al. It's great to share some time with you.
0: Again, we'll have the book available in the online bookstore. Best thing that
2: I've seen on the Dead Sea Scrolls.